Welcome back to Plantopia, the plant health podcast produced by the American Phytopathological Society. I'm Jim Bradine, a professor of plant pathology and associate vice president for strategy at Colorado State University. And I'm very excited to talk with Matt Casson today. Matt is an associate professor of mycology and forest pathology at West Virginia University. He's also the director of the International Culture Collection of Vesicular Arbuscular Mycorrhizal Fungi, or INVAM. And INVAM is the largest collection of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi in the world. MAP's research is really quite varied. It focuses broadly on mycology and forest pathology, but also includes work on fungal arthropod interactions, the biological control of invasive plants and pathogens, and the biology and ecology of both historic and emerging forest tree diseases. Matt teaches plant pathology courses, both at the undergrad and grad levels, and he's a longtime APS member. And I've known Matt for some time and can attest that he's a constant advocate for justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion in our profession. Matt's also what I'm going to describe as a power user on social media, leveraging Twitter in particular for science communication and public engagement. And Matt, thank you so much for taking time to be with us on Plantopia. No, thanks for having me, Jim. So I want to start today with a bit of a controversy, I guess. That controversy centers around peeps. Whether you love them or hate them, the sugar-coated marshmallow candies in garish colors and shaped like baby chicks or bunny rabbits uh, make an annual appearance every spring in the U.S., in Canada, and maybe other parts of the world. Now, Peeps has really had something of a following in recent years on various social media platforms. There have been efforts to document the destruction or maybe the indestructibility of Peeps, everything from dipping them in acid to putting them in the microwave. And Matt, you leveraged this trend in a really creative way to introduce the idea of mycology, the importance of fungi, as well as the scientific process. In March of 2019, you launched what you call a fungal peeps. This was, I think, a Twitter-based effort that really, really got a lot of traction, lots of likes, lots of retweets, a lot of interactions. It also was featured four days later on March 29th in the New York Times. What the heck is fungal peeps? (laughs) Oh, I think what fungal peeps is now and what it was then, I don't know if they're the same thing. So one day I'm in the grocery store with my young boys, and of course they want to go to the seasonal candy aisle, as most kids want to go to. And there was just shelf upon shelf of peeps. And I think I was going to the lab afterward to water the plants in in VAM or something like that. And I thought, oh, wow, I could do something with these and some kind of experiment. Of course, as you said before, I spent a lot of time doing SciComm on Twitter, trying to engage the general public in conversations on fungi. And and SciComm is sort of short lingo for science communication. That's right. Science communication. Sorry about that. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing various types of efforts to generate content and to engage broader audiences in conversation of science and science literacy. And as I was walking by these peeps, my kids said, could we have some? And I started to pile them into the cart and they're getting all excited. I said, well, don't get too excited. I'm going to inoculate them with fungi. And of course, you know, like any kid of a mycologist, they kind of shrugged their shoulders inside. And I brought them into the lab with the idea that this would be a really cool visual experiment because when it comes down to it, engagement on social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, it's largely driven by photos. 
and what you share. You know, you can create a lot of content with a lot of good text and, you know, pour your heart out. But honestly, you get way more engagements if you have a compelling picture. But I thought this would be visually stunning to see what fungi could make use of this kind of advanced substrate. Because at the end of the day, you know, when we're thinking about fungal ecology, we're just thinking about all the unique lifestyles and unique substrates that fungi are able to degrade. And I thought, well, we could just try a number of fungi we have active in culture in the lab. And I kind of went into the culture room and said, okay, who's here? We had some Cryphonectria, the chestnut blight pathogen. We had some Fusarium. We had some Rhizopus, some Penicillium, maybe some Aspergillus. As time goes by, I forget all the fungi we inoculated into these peeps, but I was able to inoculate them that day. And like you said, I put it out there and really this was my first experience with a viral tweet. I think some 3,500 people liked it and, you know, retweeted it. And shortly thereafter, I got a DM from Joanna Klein from New York Times who said, hey, what's this fungal peeps thing all about? I'm really interested to hear more about it. And before I talked to her, I started to think about like, why? Why are people so interested in this? You know, I talk about fungi all the time, but they're really interested in this. And it comes back to this idea that we really have to meet people where they are. There's no one in the general public is going to have a Petri plate in their kitchen. No one is going to have a thermocycler <laughs> on their kitchen top. But, you know, everyone has candy. Everyone has moldy bread. Everyone has expired food. And we often see fungi, some of which are plant pathogens, growing on those substrates. So when you're willing to meet people where they are and engage with things that they know, you're going to connect with more people. And that's exactly what happened here. And while I was entertaining them with these photos of these fungus inoculated peeps, which presented its own challenges, by the way, and I can get into that in a second, I realized that I had an opportunity to teach them a little something about fungi. Besides the whole idea of is a peep indestructible, I could say, well, if the peeps are being consumed by the fungi, like why are fungi able to do that? No other organism, you know, and explain that fungi are unique and that they could occur and exist in these really extreme environments, whether it's high salt content or high sugar content, and they could utilize that substrate like no other microbe can. So I think that was a real nice opportunity to kind of teach the general public that fungi are out there doing these kinds of things all the time. They're just hidden in plain sight. You only catch wind of them or catch sight of them when they're sporulating on your orange that you left too long on your counter or that fresh loaf of bread without preservatives that you bought from the farmer's market that molded within three days. It's only then that you realize that fungi are all around us. Very cool. I think your experiment also taught a bit about the scientific process. And I think some of the early comments you got on that tweet about your controls, was that correct? Yeah. So what actually ended up happening is it turns out that the makers of Peeps know what they're doing. The food industry knows how to craft somewhat indestructible products. Now, these products have shelf lives, but under ideal conditions could last far past their shelf life. And what we had to do was actually pre-soak the next batch of Peeps in water because the water was so inaccessible and the moisture was so low in these Peeps that most of the fungi were basically stopped in their tracks in these inoculations. But once we added the water, sure enough, several of the fungi just took off. And that's not a surprise because we know fungi, like a lot of microbes, you know, need and love water and love moist conditions. And this brings us to the next point that if you've experienced severe flooding in your basement and you keep your peeps down there, they're probably not safe. So in your experiment, though, were there certain fungi that won the race? 
Oh, certainly. The members of the Rhizopus did quite a number on them. I believe the Aspergillus or Penicillium also were able to kind of grow outward, radiate outward and sporulate quite well. But when you look at some of the after pictures, and we can post some links to those tweets on this podcast, all that was left of the peeps from the Rhizopus was the eyes, (laughs) which is really creepy because you're thinking, what's in the eyes? Yeah, some of the pictures on Matt's um, Twitter account are pretty graphic. We should warn you <laughs> about that. His Twitter handle, by the way, is Casson underscore WVU. That's uh, K-A-S-S-O-N underscore WVU. And the tweet we're discussing actually was on March 25th, 2019. And you can also search uh, hashtag fungal peeps. And there's actually quite a lot out there. And we will make sure we put um, links or pictures on the plantopia.org landing page as well. Matt, I should have asked this up front, but are you now or have you ever been funded by Peeps or the Peeps Parent Corporation? No, there's no conflict of interest there. Um, (laughs) uh, We tried to get them engaged. I think I tagged them actually in the tweet and it was radio silence. But, you know, it was all in good fun. And I really enjoy eating peeps. I'm in the camp that loves peeps because I have 28 sweet teeth. I love sugar. I love candy. Peeps are no exception. So I'm happy to eat peeps that aren't covered in fungi. But I also enjoy kind of these types of experiments because it gives me a chance to connect with the broader public on topics of mycology, plant pathology. I think this experiment, this social media campaign, whatever we want to call it, really stands out in my mind in recent years as, you know, runaway success. I really appreciated the way you integrated that scientific process, the knowledge of mycology, but did make it very relatable and obviously very timely too. You, you want to hit that period when the, the are in the stores. Oh, I was curious if you, if you got any hate mail from this experiment. <laughs> No, no hate mail. I got a lot of offers for old boxes of peeps and things like that. I think the most interesting email to come out of this was after the New York Times article came out. A high school student from California reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking to recreate your experiment for science fair. And the student's name was Jocelyn Swift, and she was at San Jose High School in California. It was a real opportunity to turn something that was just a viral tweet into something more meaningful, where we were able to leverage this viral tweet, connect with the media, and then connect with students that saw it in the popular media and help to advise her on her experiment. She presented her results, and then we were able to co-author a paper together in the journal Microbiology and Biology Education, JMBE, which is an ASM journal. And that was such a rewarding process. Her, along with her teachers, were co-authors on that. And we kind of went into this saying that, well, if you wanted to write it up in that way and have an opportunity to publish a paper on how we basically turn social media posts into more meaningful kind of deliverables, and she was really excited about that. And it it worked out really well. It was an overall rewarding process. And of course, that was just connecting with one student and we'd like to connect with more. And there's a lot of people that are engaging classrooms through like Skype a scientist. There's a lot of great initiatives out there where whole classrooms are being connected with scientists and those are wonderful. And this is just one example where we made a connection with a single student and were able to turn it into some meaningful experience for them and for us. That's really amazing you know, to think about being in high school and you have your first author publication in a peer-reviewed journal. That's really, really special. The article that we were just referencing is called From Hashtag to High School, How Viral Tweets Are Inspiring Young Scientists to Embrace STEM. And that was published in 2020 in the Journal of Microbiology and Biology Education. And we'll make sure there's a link to that as well on the plantopia.org page for this particular episode. So fungal peeps was certainly a success. 
And I know you had a follow-up, sort of a parallel experiment that also had quite a bit of traction on social media. What was that? Yeah, this was a little bit different because it was kind of a found item. Colin Purrington, who is a Twitter mutual of mine, posted a picture back in 2020 of a eight-year-old box of Twinkies he had stored in his basement. And one of them was completely mummified. One of them had kind of a quarter-sized lesion on it. And he kind of posted a picture. And as soon as I saw it on social media, I'm like, we need to isolate from that and see what it is. And, you know, of course, it wasn't so much as like the viral tweet kind of that wasn't the quest or that wasn't the intention. It was just that it was such a fun activity to do fungal peeps. This was our next thing to do. And so I responded and said, we would love to have it and love to see if it's a fungus based on the pictures we saw. It's probably a fungus. So he sent them overnight or two day mail to us. I took some pictures and put up a hashtag Operation Moldy Twinkie up, and it went viral almost immediately, similar to the fungal peeps. And Nell Greenfield's voice from NPR reached out and said, hey, I'd love to follow up on this and figure out what's in there. So we stayed in communication and, you know, went through the Koch's postulates (laughs) and isolated from these tissues using both a bone marrow biopsy tool. We have a real interesting video on that. It's actually a common tool we use in our lab. About three decades ago, there was an undergrad that worked in the lab whose partner worked in the medical sciences, and they had a surplus of these bone marrow biopsy tools. And they're really good for woody tissues like bark and sampling trees because it gives you a very specific sample about the size of a mechanical pencil tip. So we were able to use one of those tools to excise the samples from this moldy Twinkie and from the lesion on the other Twinkie and plate them out and see who grew. And sure enough, we were able to isolate Cladosporium from the smaller lesion. But the mummified Twinkie, I think all the usable food source had been used up and the fungus died. So we weren't able to get anything to grow out. But we did extract DNA and were able to confirm Cladosporium from that multi Twinkie as well. So that whole process was really exciting, too. And boy, did that bring out people from the woodwork. We had offers of old chicken wings. We had offer of every (laughs) old, outdated food that you can find in the back of a garage parked, you know, abandoned car offered to be sent our way at a moment's notice. And it's not something we wanted, but we became that lab that people wanted to send old moldy food to. (laughs) It's really great. Again, I think you're doing SciComm, science communication, leveraging social media for scientific engagement in really creative ways. I love to follow your Twitter account. And I I love your ability to take something that is sort of in the zeitgeist, right? That people do care about, people are talking about already, but put that little bit of a spin on it that builds an understanding of the field of plant pathology, the field of mycology, the scientific process. Really, really fantastic work that you're doing in that space. What advice do you have for scientists out there or soon to be scientists out there who want to get into science communication. I think it's great to be out there. And I think, you know, there'll be a number of senior faculty that might push their students away from it and say, oh, that's a waste of time. I say that's nonsense. I've gotten more coverage from my research from Twitter, you know, five years on Twitter than I have my whole life as a researcher. And all my media requests have been, I saw this on Twitter. I saw this photo on Twitter. So I think in terms of telling the world what my lab is doing and and the good work my students are doing and also engaging the general audience and the general public and in SciComm, Twitter is a great vehicle for that. 
I will say that it can be challenging to get outside the echo chamber. As a scientist on Twitter, I follow a lot of scientists and a lot of scientists follow me. And it takes a lot of followers to kind of lower that number of actual scientists and get more members of the general public. But you're going to get more members of the general public engaged if you're meeting them where they are, like the Twinkies and the Peeps. They're not going to know what a QPCR result looks like. (laughs) And you can explain that. That's fine. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying, but if you want to engage the general public, you're going to have to make it enjoyable for them, not just yourself. Yeah, really, really great advice. And I think you're right to sort of characterize SciComm as maybe at some level appealing to broad masses with great pictures, with sort of, you know, trendy activities in the moment. The challenge and the opportunity, though, is to really embed that scientific education into it. And the more, the merrier. We really need more people talking about science, uh, scientific processes. And so follow Matt on Twitter (laughs) and follow his example, because I really do think he's doing it very, very well. well. And the other advice I'll give, if you don't mind me saying, is that you can't get on social media with the intent to produce viral posts because it's unpredictable. You can't know what post you have. In fact, there is a little way to tell. If you have a spelling error in a tweet, that's a good indication that you'll probably go viral because it's often the ones where you're like, oh, I wish I could edit that. It goes viral or something. The other thing is to be your true self as much as you can. And I realize that's not easy for all people to be their true self online. But I talk about my kids. I talk about my personal life. I think these show that I'm a, a real human. I'm imperfect. I struggle with things. There's ups and downs. I have victories, but I also have failures. I think that's important. That's great advice. Now, your entire scientific career, though, is not torturing peeps or testing Twinkies. You're a bona fide mycologist with really broad interest in forest health. How did you get into plant pathology or mycology or forest pathology, however you see yourself professionally? Well, this is a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. I grew up in a small town in Northeast Pennsylvania called Forest City. (laughs) It's north of Scranton, about 20 miles. And our school mascot was the Forester. And as it turns out, after I finished high school, this county I grew up in, Susquehanna County, was very rural. It was a farming, hunting, fishing kind of community. And I engaged in fishing and hunting with my dad and brother. And I spent a lot of time in the woods as a Boy Scout. And just generally, because we had so much land next to our house that was water company land. So I was always in the woods. So I guess it wasn't a shock to many. When I went to apply to college, I applied to forestry school and ended up going to upstate New York for my first degree. I got an Associates of Applied Science in Forestry at Paul Smith's College. And then after that, I went to the University of Maine, where I did a Bachelor's of Science in Forest Ecosystem Science. And I stayed on there with my undergraduate advisor to do my Master's of Science in Forestry. And really, during that process of studying forestry, there's always a component of forest health, how to keep trees healthy, not just through silviculture or the you know manipulation of stand density and spacing but also decreasing or screening for or scouting for disease. So in my first forestry school in upstate New York at Paul Smith's, I learned about white pine blister rust, and I learned about beech bark disease and a number of these kind of iconic tree diseases that have been around for a long time and are still impacting forest health today. So 
when I had an opportunity to stay on at the University of Maine to pursue a master's working on beach bark disease in northern Maine, it was really already a dream come true because I was really interested in forest health and took a class in that at both schools. And as I was doing my master's, I realized that I really wanted to be a professor. So as I moved toward that, I eventually finished my master's and went to Penn State where I did a PhD in plant pathology, working on a native vascular wilt fungus, verticillium wilt. On, on the invasive tree of heaven. So that's kind of my path up through my PhD, but really growing up in a rural area, spending a lot of time in the woods, falling in love with forests and trees, and then realizing that, oh, trees too get sick and under, trying to understand how to improve their lives. What is your lab working on right now in the forest health space? Yeah, well, I have a couple of grad students and undergrads working on a couple specific projects. We're still working on verticillium wilt as a biocontrol of Tree of Heaven, something I've been working on since my PhD and I've had a couple students on. I have a student currently working on pests and pathogens of sugar bushes. So we're looking at diseases that impact sugar maple and red maple health in maple syrup production stands. So that's been really exciting because Maples are susceptible to verticillium wilt, but I haven't worked specifically in like sugar maple stands. So that's been really exciting to see some of the fungi that we're getting out of that. I work on chestnut blight, which a lot of your listeners will know is one of the most iconic plant pathogens of all time. And we use a virus to debilitate the fungus that allows the tree to respond and basically overcome the infection. So continuing to work on that. I have another student who's working on ambrosia beetles, that vector pathogenic fungi. And I have a student coming on from the NSF GRFP this fall to continue to work on the Neonectria and Nectriaceae, these beech bark disease pathogens and closely related allies. So a couple different forest health projects that are ongoing, but only a subset of all the projects in the lab because I've gotten interested in environmental micro outside of forest health as well. Sounds like you really are busy. That's a very broad portfolio. When you think about your own career, or you think more broadly about forest health and the time that you've been in this space, what changes have you seen? Well, I think if you ask someone that was 10 years older than me, they would say the biggest change they saw over their career was everything went molecular, right? Or a lot of the work went to be bench work and looking at the phylogenetics and things like that. And I think we could say for our generation that everything is genome-based, right? We're sequencing the genomes of all our pathogens. We're trying to understand plant pathogens at the genome level, and we're doing comparative genomics. And although I'm more applied, I leverage the power of genomes to mine out, you know, mating type genes and, and to look at specific secondary metabolite gene clusters. So there's useful things in genomes, even if you're not a person who does comparative genomics. Even if you're just mining out single gene markers for phylogenetics, it's still useful to have those genomes that are publicly accessible. But I would say that's a big thing. I think one of the other things that forest pathologists have been struggling with is there's less and less jobs available in academia. There's forest health jobs available nationwide, but there's a lot of competition between entomologists and plant pathologists for those positions. And I think each would argue that they're better qualified for a forest health job than the other. And I would say both are qualified, but it's unfortunate that in some cases, entomologists are having to carry a lot of plant pathology and plant pathologists are having a lot to carry a lot of entomology. And that presents some challenges. That's a really interesting trend that you're noting. I'm curious, in your perspective as an instructor, does that translate to how you're teaching plant pathology? Well, so I teach plant pathology and I teach forest pest management. And forest pest management, although we teach vectors in general plant path, 
Forest Pest Management, which is my other course, which is more geared towards forestry students, is half entomology, half plant pathology. And I teach the full course. So I feel like it's a more balanced approach for them to understand contemporary threats that forests are facing. And they can go out and see a defoliating caterpillar, or they could see a wood boring beetle, or they could see a leaf spot pathogen or a, a root rot disease and know them to see them. So mm -hmm. I feel like we're preparing those students a little bit better. Whereas general plant pathology is more focused just on the different pathogen groups. The thing that they get, the, the forestry students don't, is that we don't spend too much time in forest pest management talking about viruses and bacterial diseases. Because in the tree pathology or forest pathology world, we don't deal with a lot of bacterial diseases. You know, we have leaf scorch and a couple others, but generally we're talking mostly about fungal pathogens because they have the enzymatic capacity to degrade lignin. So they're the ones that are dominant in these perennial woody hosts. Mm. Really interesting. It seems to me that forest health is one of those areas that is extremely dynamic. I think the challenges are many, they're multifaceted, and it seems that both human practices, as well as uh, climate change, really are influencing forest health in, in many, many different ways. The, the fact that students are being trained broadly, or you see an opportunity or need to train students broadly, really, really aligns with what I think we're seeing. Right. And the other thing is that I mentioned that entomologists and plant pathologists are competing for jobs, but they're also competing with ecologists as well. And of course, this is not me attacking ecology either. There's a need for ecologists as well. But at some point, when you have an ecologist taking a position that maybe a plant pathologist, the diagnostic training is less maybe in that capacity. So I think the kind of ability to work with the organisms, to isolate them, to fulfill Koch's postulates, do these things, or fulfill Leach's rules, these are important aspects to plant pathology and shouldn't be swept aside. I agree with that perspective, for sure. It'll be interesting to see how these various fields adapt in the future and how we influence each other, too. There's a lot to be done out there, I think, and, and there's right. a lot of opportunity for different perspectives in, in doing this. I want to ask what might be an unfair question here. <laughs> might begin to, uh, which of your children is your favorite? But you work on lots of different pathogens, a lot of different plant diseases. Do you have favorites? You know, I think... A lot of plant pathologists, if you ask what their favorite pathogen is, a good percent of them will probably say it's the first one they worked on in a meaningful way. And for me, the Neonectria fungi, Neonectria detisma, Neonectria faginata, those are the two fungi, two causal agents involved in beech bark disease. And I worked on in Maine. I had a PhD student, Cameron Stoddard, who now works for the Forest Service. He worked on them here. I have a new student coming on, Hannah, who's going to be doing that work thanks to an NSF GRFP. So I'm continuing to work on those. And as I work on them here in West Virginia, which is a real hotbed for biodiversity of these fungi, we're finding more and more new species. So I really have an eye for these things so much that my kids now have an eye for it. So if we go somewhere, they point out parathesia on the bark of trees and say, hey, is this one, is this one important? My kids are like six and seven. And they're identifying parathesia. Uh, maybe I've trained them too well. But that's the other thing that if I could just go off on a tangent here for a second. One of the most meaningful things to me as a scientist is been able to go out to the woods here in West Virginia with my kids and make some of these first discoveries. Like when we found this new species of Coronectria on red spruce in the high mountains of West Virginia. It was, you know, December of 2018, and I was with my three boys in the woods. And when I found the tree covered with these parathesia, I'm like, this is something new. And my oldest got excited. And he goes, are we going to be famous? And I said, no, no, that's not, not really how it works. 
But I said, these are the breadcrumbs that keep scientists going. And he was really excited. He smiled the whole day. And it was real special to be able to share that moment with them. Because when I look at the paper now that we've published on this work in fungal ecology, in between the pages, I see glimpses of my kids smiling and just having enjoyed that experience with me. Are they co-authors? They're not, they're, they're acknowledged, <laughs> you know, they didn't do enough to justify co-authorship at their current age, but they are all acknowledged in the acknowledgements. That's wonderful. You're touching a bit on your personal life, and this is one aspect of my interactions with you that I've always really uh, appreciated. You talked in the social media context about being authentic, being yourself, putting yourself out there, and you've done that in really meaningful ways in your professional life. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, you've been a longtime advocate for JEDI, for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in our profession. You were one of the first APS members to reach out to our governing council after the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, asking our leaders to make a statement about that. I want to thank you publicly for your advocacy in that particular instance. I also want to thank our APS leadership for not just putting out a well-intended but toothless statement, but for really articulating the values of the American Phytopathological Society and tying that to metrics that I think really continue to influence real change in our society. We've got a ways to go, but advocates like you really do make a difference. I want to thank you for your work in that space. Additionally, you've been an advocate for mental health issues in academia, certainly in plant pathology, but I think that the impacts really extend beyond our particular discipline. In 2021, you published an article in Nature in the career column section of the Nature magazine called Finding Mental Health Clarity Under Pandemic Pressures. And in that article, you talked about your own experiences, challenges with depression in explicit terms, You detailed the impact of graduate studies on your anxiety. You talked about being hospitalized as an undergrad student. And you also articulated how the pandemic and the complexities of home life and your quest for tenure and promotion uh, impacted you. It was, to me, a really powerful article, one that certainly spoke to your authentic experiences and put you out there as a human being. Why did you choose to write this article? I think this comes back to being so active on social media. And if I could quickly just jump back to the APS and statement, I think I was seeing in real time a lot of other professional societies putting out statements and realizing that I hadn't heard anything from APS leadership. Not that they weren't thinking about it, but it inspired me to reach out and say, look, I've seen AAAS and MSA and some of these other professional societies that I know of or I'm involved with. And, you know, I want to make sure that APS is also representing their membership and advocating for their members. So you said that leadership did an excellent job and I'm proud to be a part of APS and I'm proud of that response. Coming back to the mental health thing, I too have witnessed people telling their stories on social media. And so often, as with all justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, so much weight falls on the shoulders of early career scientists. And it's just so unfair that they have to invest so much of their time in this. And us tenured faculty are just kind of continuing to do business as usual. But the pandemic taught me that it can no longer be business as usual because 
the strain and my own coping mechanisms for dealing with my untreated, undiagnosed ADHD and anxiety was just too much. And for those listening that have young kids and have made it through this pandemic, it was really stressful. And I think just the anxiety of keeping business as usual at work and homeschooling kids for a short while and doing all that was just, it was overwhelming. And I knew that once I got tenure too, that gave me a little bit of security that maybe early career scientists didn't feel. And I felt it important to be like, look, not only can you make it to tenure with these things, but there's tenured faculty that understand your story, that share your story, and can tell you that there's ways to navigate with those complicated mental disorders and mental health issues. So I felt it was really important to talk about that. I also am beginning to realize that it's not just about publications. For so long as a scientist, I'm like, got to get more publications, got to get more publications. And if you look at what I post on social media, I'm writing more editorials and this careers piece. I'm writing more for newsletters for our professional societies because I feel like it's not just about publications. And I know that hiring committees, a lot of them look at those metrics, but I can tell you, I serve on hiring committees and I bring up these other things because they matter to me and I'm in a position of power now and I let other people know that they're important and that this is a changing landscape. And if we really care about being inclusive, then we need to look at other metrics. Representation matters. That's really the biggest motivation behind me coming out with my story about struggles with mental health is that I can't tell you the number of DMs I got from that. That's incredibly powerful. Thank you for sharing that story here as well as in that Nature article. And we will link to that Nature article on plantopia.org. You referenced it a little bit already, but what I'm curious what feedback you received from that article. A lot of it was just people having a similar experience where they were misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder and, and realizing that they had ADHD and getting diagnosed for the first time as a you know 30-year-old or 40-year-old. The other thing was just feeling a lot of people saying, look, I can't talk publicly about this, but I'm glad you did because I can't. I'm an industry. I'm a grad student. I, like I'm afraid to talk about these things and for it to be a black mark on my CV. And what I tried to articulate in that is that I too had a red flag on my CV. And what I'm also realizing is that maybe another reason we need to talk about this is how do you address these things? How do you incorporate them into your personal statement or your diversity statement? You know, there's a lot of lived experiences that I don't have. Obviously, here we are in Pride Month, and there is a tremendous amount of hardship that members of the LGBTQ community have dealt with and continue to deal with on a daily basis. And I can appreciate those, those hardships, but I can't fully understand them because it's not my lived experience. But what I will say is that coming out and talking publicly about my mental health has made me understand maybe a glimpse, a glimpse, just a small glimpse into that because I was hiding a part of who I was out of fear of professional retaliation. And that made me feel really bad and really awful. If you times that by 10 or times it by 100, you know, that's what a lot of members of the LGBTQ community are dealing with perpetually. And representation matters. Absolutely. I think the power of, you know, living authentically when you're in that position where you can do that safely can really mean a lot to people. So thank you for your leadership in this space. I think you're brave in your approach, and I think it is sorely, sorely needed and very, very much appreciated. 
So Matt, we've covered a lot of ground here and I enjoyed every moment of this conversation. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? Anything you want to share that we haven't touched on? Yeah, actually, I was thinking a little bit more about, mentioned that I have a number of projects that are not plant pathology related, they're mycology related, but why that matters here is that I'm realizing that the more diverse kind of disparate topics I work on, the more I'm able to draw off these unique experiences and leverage some of those approaches for the other projects. So there's a lot of synergy and crosstalk happening. I have a National Geographic grant to look at fungus feeding millipedes. And although that's not at first glance forest health related, they may be driving decay communities in the understory on these logs, helping to change nitrogen and carbon cycling. But some of the approaches, the culture-based and molecular-based approaches we're using in those systems can apply to, you know, plant disease complexes that involve insect vectors. So sometimes we go out on a limb and take on new projects that seem completely unrelated, and maybe they are. But you realize that you learn things from those unique projects that you can then leverage, you know, for other projects. So stuff we're doing with millipedes is relevant to canker diseases and stuff we're doing on brosia beetles is relevant to cicadas and so on and so on. But I think it's good to, if you can, and I know funding dictates this, um, sometimes your contract uh, stipulates this, you know, try to get involved with some different side projects that are outside your comfort zone. So you can not only meet new collaborators, but you can kind of reframe the way you look at a system or look at a crop or look at a tree species and maybe come up with some new insight or some new approach. Getting outside of your comfort zone, I think is great advice, both in work and in life. Matt, thank you so much. Really, again, a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me. Really had a great time. We just heard from Matt Casson, Associate Professor of Mycology and Forest Pathology at West Virginia University. And you can follow Matt on Twitter at Casson underscore WVU. I'm Jim Bradeen, the host of the Plantopia podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you again soon.